Good morning, Servants Church. Great to be with you guys again this morning. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago. And so I want to read to you verses 8 through 15 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. We've already looked at verses 8 through 10, but I want to read the whole section to remind us of the context, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it together. So follow me as I read in your Bible on your device, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be uh, saved through childbirth if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And Father, we do pray once again that you would help us, uh, Lord, as we unpack what today is such a controversial section of Scripture. And Lord, that we wouldn't forget that your word challenges every culture and every time, that your gospel challenges all of us to, to see you for who you are and to trust you for who you are. Lord, we pray that you would bless this time in your word. We pray you give us understanding. We pray you give us wisdom about how we can walk in your ways. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are looking at, in 1 Timothy, the theme of the priority of the local church. Paul is writing to Timothy uh, this letter of 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 instruction about how he can correct the things that are lacking in the churches in Ephesus. And specifically, what Paul's wanting to see happen here is that the churches get their priorities straight. And so even though he's addressing Timothy, he was expecting this letter to be read to the whole congregation. And so the things that were read, uh, would have been read out on that day, have application for us as congregations, as gatherings of people who want to follow after Jesus. Now, if you are new to this, or if you've just kind of maybe started watching uh, uh, these messages recently, maybe the last few months over lockdown, you're new to the things of Jesus, the things of Christianity, then this is one of those places where you might, it might chafe against you a little bit. It might be difficult for you to, to take in. Or if you've grown up in a church where uh, it was no big deal to have women as leaders in the church. Nobody even thought twice about that. Or maybe you're just of the conviction that there shouldn't be a problem with this. This is going to chafe against you a little bit. But I hope that you'll be willing to be patient to endure with me. And I hope that you can see that what we're trying to bring out here is what God is actually saying in His words, uh, in His word. Now, the, the truth is, these scriptures are difficult to apply in our context. There's legitimate debate about how we should apply the truth of these scriptures. But the, 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 the truth is also, though, these, these verses are difficult for us to receive because of past and even present uh, uh, sexism in the church. And so we have to be willing to take the scripture at face value. We have to be, <coughs> be willing to interpret it through a gospel lens. But we also have to own up to the fact that this has often been misapplied in a way that doesn't bring glory to Jesus and has been very oppressive 
to our sisters in the Lord. So let's pick it up in verse 11. And I want to be start off with, with seeing that Paul is very clear about authority in complementarian roles, that is, the roles between men and women. So in verse 11, let's read it again. Paul says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, before we talk about what this means, it's really important to understand what it doesn't mean, what Paul is not saying. And we know Paul's not saying these things because of what Paul has said in other letters, what he's written in other letters. First, it's important for us to recognize that Paul is not saying that women are inferior to men. That's not what he's saying. We know this from the Genesis account, way back in Genesis chapter 1, when God says clearly, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God saw that uh, everything that he made, uh, saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So on the sixth day of creation, according to Genesis, God creates man and woman, male and female, both as image bearers of God equally. But then also we read in Galatians 3.28 that the gospel shows and proves that men and women have equal value. It says there is uh, neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither uh, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel is this great leveler of people, social status, ethnicity. These things are not nearly as important for our identity as the fact that we're followers of Jesus Christ. And so this is what the Bible teaches. Paul's not saying, the Bible is not teaching that women are inferior to men. But also, Paul's not saying that women can't speak in church. If you remember from last time we were 1 Timothy, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul was really clear uh, that women both pray and prophesy in public. But also, listen, there's more examples of this in Acts chapter 2. Here's this great promise of the last days. What does it say? In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and daughters, will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And then even we have an example of of daughters prophesying or women prophesying in uh, Acts chapter 21 verse 9 where it talks about Philip the evangelist had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So obviously prophecy involves speaking in church, in the congregation. So Paul's not saying women cannot speak in church. In fact, I would also say prophecy has an instructional value to it. Prophecy isn't teaching, that's a different gift, but prophecy does have an instructional value to it. So there is something to that as far as women bringing something of instructional value to men. So keep that in mind. But also Paul's not saying that women do not or cannot use teaching and leadership gifts. Besides having gifts of prophecy, women can also have teaching gifts and leadership gifts. Now we know this again from what Paul writes in Titus 2.3 where Paul says, uh, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderous or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. He was expecting the women to teach, specifically older or younger women, what is good. They were supposed to be those who could instruct well. Uh, Also, we see this in in, in the book of Acts. We see this great couple, Priscilla and Aquila, sometimes called Aquila and Priscilla, Aquila being the husband, Priscilla being the wife. Look at what it says about them. Speaking of Apollos, it says, Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained the way of God more 
adequately. In other words, when this great orator Apollos was first beginning to speak of the Messiah, but he didn't know much about the Messiah, when they heard him speak, they took him aside. And it's, it's significant that Priscilla, the wife's name, is first, because here we get this indication that they were both uh, teaching Apollos about good doctrine, but possibly in this situation, Priscilla was leading the way. And so Paul's not saying here in this idea of let the women uh, learn quietly, he's not saying that women are inferior to men, that women cannot speak in church, or that women do not uh, have or cannot use teaching or leadership gifts. So what is Paul saying? Well, we'll look at verse 11 again. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. So what we're going to see really clearly in the context that what Paul is saying here is he is calling women to be at peace under male leadership, to be okay with that. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Why would Paul even need to say this? We, we saw last time we were in 1 Timothy that clearly that uh, the scriptures were written in a patriarchal society. So why would he even need to say this? Specifically in first century Judaism, why would he need to say, hey, women, you need to kind of be okay with being under male authority? Well, as what we read earlier, like in verses like Galatians 3.28, where, where Paul's really clear that the gospel is an equalizer, that women have this exalted status that Jesus brought to them through his death and his resurrection and his work. And so there was a temptation with that to say, okay, if we're equal, why do we have to listen to these guys? And Paul's trying to bring a correction with this. And he's saying, look, there needs to be a peace about being under male leadership. And also, this is a, harder to, a little harder to, uh, to accept, but Paul seems to be clearly saying that women cannot have authority over men in the church. Look at verse 12. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. <clears throat> uh, and so it's interesting because uh, here we have a situation, and this is where it gets a bit tricky to apply. Here, Paul seems to be really clear that a woman can't have authority over a man. I mean, there's not really any other way to interpret this. There are a lot of people who want to apply this away to say this doesn't really apply anymore. Paul's only speaking culturally, but that doesn't really fit in the, in the context of the New Testament, nor in the context of 1 Timothy. So, how, what does Paul mean by this? Because he certainly doesn't mean that, as we saw already, that, that women can't speak in church because they can prophesy. And we've already seen that there's times when women do teach men, at least in partnership with their husbands. So, how does this work? Well, rather than kind of take the time this morning to break down uh, how this works in each local church, let me just say this. It's going to look different in most local churches, even local churches that believe in complementarian roles. We'll talk about in future weeks some specifics about why we do what we do and even how we are learning to maybe adjust. Maybe we were misapplying this. But suffice it to say for now that, that the truth is Paul is saying that women cannot have authority over men in the church. Now, we get to verses 13 and 14, and what we see is Paul gives some theological reasons for these complementary roles. And so this is where it's going to get really a bit deep. And you're going to really have to kind of put your thinking cap on and try to follow me. We're going to look at a lot of verses from the book of Genesis. They'll be on the screen. You'll be able to see these things. But I want you to follow along with me as we do this. Now, Paul does something in verse 13 that Jesus often did when he was confronted with tough questions. He goes back to the creation account. So Paul writes this in Genesis, I'm saying Paul writes this in uh, verse 13. He says, here's the reason for uh, uh, women to not have authority over men. 
The first reason is, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. In other words, it goes right to God's purposes in uh, creation. So, so follow me as we read Genesis chapter 2. Listen to this. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 18. This is the creation account of how God is going to create Adam and Eve. Now, I want you to notice this really carefully. It says in verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden, Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Then God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, obviously, I want you to notice that God's going to make a helper fit for Adam. But I want you to also notice here that God is giving a directive to Adam, the first man. And he's saying, Adam, you have a responsibility for the tending and the keeping of the garden. But you also have a responsibility to make sure that you are choosing the right way, spiritually speaking, that you're walking in obedience. You're enjoying all that's in the garden, but you're, all, you're saying yes to all the good that God's given you. But you're also saying no to the stuff that God says I forbid that. You are to take initiative and lead in this way. And then what happens, of course, is God says it's not good for man to be alone. And so God wants to rectify that, that incompleteness. And so what does he do? Verse 21 of Genesis chapter 2. So the Lord causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So this is, this account, remember, is before sin has entered into creation. Creation at this point is still sinless. It's still Perfect. It's not complete, but it's perfect. And you see here, God, we, we, see from, we saw from Genesis 1 that God's clear that both men and image are, are, are men and women are image bearers of God. So this is what's really interesting about this. In, in God giving us the second account, in Moses writing out the second account of how God creates woman from man, he's showing us something about his purposes. And that is this. That God's part of God's purposes is that we would bear his image to one another. See, image bearer, being an individual image bearer of God, gives us as individuals value. We know that. This is something that we should affirm strongly as Christians. This is why we believe in things like we want to protect the most vulnerable from COVID. This is why we believe in things we want to protect the unborn in the womb. This is why we say we want to protect those who have special needs. We value all people because all people are image bearers of God. But the purpose of that image bearing is for one another. I don't bear the image of God so I can look in the mirror and go, yep, yeah, there's God. That's not why I bear the image of God. I'm meant to bear the image of God so I can show others something about who God is. And you do the same thing. God has uniquely made human beings as the part of his creation that bears his image. So this idea of making male and female is they're meant to image or bear the image of God to one another. And they have a specific way that they do that. In fact, listen to this. The Bible teaches us one of the ways, one of the reasons God's doing this is to show us that uh, about the Godhead, show us that inside the Godhead, within who God is, 
that there is both deference and equality. That is, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are one, they're equal, but also within there, they, they defer to one another. Specifically, the Son defers to the Father. Listen to this, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 to 5. Paul, in writing again about the roles of men and women in, in, in public life, in, the church, in church life at least, he says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now this is important because when he says the head of every man is Christ, he's saying to the men, you are under somebody. You are meant to defer to me as the Savior. That's what God would say. That's what... Paul's writing, you're meant to defer to Christ as Savior. But then he also says, but women are meant to defer, though wives are meant to defer to their husbands in marriage. But then he also says, as Christ defers to God in the Godhead. Now, Jesus was so clear that he and the Father were one, that if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. In fact, the whole reason that the religious leaders of his day wanted to crucify Jesus was because he was insistent on his equality with God. And so the reason I bring this up is that within the Godhead, there's equality and still deference. So for this God to be imaged, to be shown to the world, God creates man, gives him a certain responsibility. God creates women, gives her a certain responsibility. And each of those responsibilities image to one another something about who God is. So Eve's responsibility in having to defer to her husband and needing to come alongside and be her helper, God didn't take Adam or didn't take Eve a, a part of <laughs> Adam's skull and make Eve. He didn't take a part of Adam's foot and make Eve. He took her right from his side as a purposeful picture of what the relationship was supposed to look like. So there's an equality, but there's deference. This is what this relationship of women to men, specifically wives to husband, is, is meant to show to, to each other and to the world. Adam, though, on the other side, Adam is meant to image something uh, specific also in this relationship. In fact, listen to what we read what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 about husband and wife relationships. Listen to this. Paul writes, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. Did you notice how Paul says, hey, husbands, I want you to love your life as Christ loves the church, and then he goes into this big spiel about how Christ loves the church? The emphasis is showing something about how God the Son has loved uh, his people. So in other words, Adam images the sacrificial love of God the Son or even of the Godhead. That this, this is what's there in the Godhead. This, the love that God is, is a sacrificial love. And so these roles between husband and wife are purposefully there in creation. God created those roles to show us something about himself and both image bearers are good equally and equally important in what they do, but distinct in what they do. Now, at this point, we read this and we go, okay, maybe that's okay, but you, that, that might work for marriage, but what about what Paul's saying here? Paul seems to be talking about church life. Well, when it comes to the church, what the Bible seems to describe, the New Testament seems to describe, is the church is a family of families. And I want to say at this point too, 
that what the creation account teaches and even what the scripture in general teaches is not that you have to be married to appreciate uh, uh, being an image bearer. No, what it's saying is that we can't be image bearers on our own. The purpose of our being image bearers is not for ourselves, it's for others. So we come together as the church to bear God's image one to another, specifically to show the, the perfections of that or the completions of that in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so there's something there that God has a purpose for in his creation that, that God wants to remain in his church, okay? Now, Paul, so Paul gives, given these theological reasons, he talks about God's purposes in creation, but also look at verse 14. He talks about God's response to man's fall. Sins come into the picture, so what does that mean? How has that affected things? Look at verse 14. Paul says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, if we read this at face value, I will fully admit it sounds a bit chauvinistic, like a bit, a bit harsh. But actually, as we're going to see, as we look at Genesis' account and also look at what Paul wrote in other letters, Paul's not being chauvinistic at all. He's actually saying there's a reason for this order that has to do with Adam's failings more than Eve's. Okay? Now, let's go back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, and see what happened when Adam and Eve fell. Okay? It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the, true, of the fruit of the, tr uh, the tree uh, that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will sh not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took uh, of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband, notice, who was with her, and he ate. Now, there's a lot that we could teach from Genesis 3. If you want to know more about this, you can go to the Genesis study and hear it in its entirety. But I want you to just notice a couple things. God had given Adam, way back in chapter 2, verse 17 of Genesis, we read that earlier. God had given Adam a responsibility, okay? He had given him a responsibility to not just tend the garden, but a responsibility to uphold God's spiritual standards for his creation. That was Adam's responsibility. So when the, the, the serpent comes and deceives, tries to deceive Eve, and Adam's staying there, what is he doing? Nothing. It was his inactivity that was the problem. He did nothing. He just stood by as Eve was being deceived by the serpent. So in other words, when Paul says Adam was not deceived, he's not saying, Adam, well, Adam's the more clever one. He wasn't deceived. He's saying Adam wasn't deceived, and yet Adam did nothing. And this was the problem of the fall. In fact, even though in one sense Eve might have sinned first, you, or we might accuse Eve of, of sinning first, Adam actually sinned first by not stopping Eve when he had a responsibility to do so. And here, here's, the, here's the reality. God gave the responsibility to Adam, not Eve. Therefore, God holds Adam, not Eve, responsible for the sins entering into creation. Now, we see this clearly in the Scriptures. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, through one man, that's Adam, sin enters creation. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for in Adam, that's the male Adam, all die. So scripture is really clear here that when, when Paul's bringing out the, the, the response to God's response to the fall, he holds Adam responsible. So in a very real sense, what Paul's saying here in verse 14 is that, look, he's not blaming Eve for being deceived. He's blaming Adam and saying Adam still has a responsibility here. The creation account confirms this. So this is all pretty clear. I don't think this is that controversial. The things I'm saying now are, are fairly well received. These are fairly, uh, these are things that we've been taught for centuries from Christian theologians. So this isn't anything new. But why is this so, such a problem within the church? Why is this so controversial among people who follow Jesus? Well, the, the bottom line is, is because of sin. As we keep going into chapter three and see the consequence of sin, I think this will become clear. So Genesis chapter three, listen. It says, this is verses 7 to 12 of Genesis 3. It says, Then the eyes of both, that's both Adam and Eve, were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Notice, He's holding Adam accountable. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid, but because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Now, when God asks questions, it's not because he doesn't know the answers. It's because he wants us to think about the answers. And he says to him, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And look what Adam says. Look what the man says. The man said, the woman you gave to be with me she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. What's the first response of a sinful man? When Adam first falls, how does he first respond? Two ways. Unbelief and chauvinism. He says to Eve, her, he says to God, her fault. He says to God, and your fault. He blame shifts. Rather than taking responsibility for himself, rather than taking responsibility for what God's given responsibility for, he blames the woman, and he blames God. Sound familiar? We continue to do the same thing all the time. And so the, the problem is, this is one of the things that creates the tension. This is why, listen, this is how men have justified their blatant sexism for hundreds and hundreds of years. They've said, hey, it's the woman. It's she, she's the problem. If women would just do what they're supposed to do, there'd be peace everywhere else. That's a lie. It's not just the woman. In fact, it's almost always first the man. We have to take responsibility as men. That's what the Bible holds up. So now listen, this doesn't mean that women get a get out of jail free card, that they, they, they're not responsible for their own sins. Each one of us as individuals will give account to God for our sin. But what we're talking about here is this reality that, that there's these complementarian roles that are meant to say something about who God is to one another, to the world, that we lose those things simply because we're sinners. Let me put this in another way. I have been guilty of sexism. There's no doubt about that. And I've just as I've been guilty of racism, there's no doubt about that. But I'm not a sexist because I'm a male, and I'm not a racist because I'm white. I'm, I've, done, I've been guilty of sexism and racism because I'm a sinner. And the way that that's been rescued is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way that's corrected is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing that's tricky for us 
If we recognize that these things are wrong, we have to then recognize what is actually right. And this is one of the reasons why we have so much problem with these areas. Because we don't want to recognize what's actually right. What God has actually said about these things. That men and women are of equal value, but they have different roles. That all nations, all cultures, we might say, all ethnicities, are, are within them, they're image bearers of God. They are all image bearers of God, but they do so in different ways in different cultures. We don't want to, to deal with that. We want to go, no, let's put everybody on the same light. Let's say everybody is the same thing. But we're not the same thing, but we have the same value and purposes. I hope that makes sense. Now, here's what's interesting. There's specific consequences to, to the fall. God brings a curse. God brings consequences. As he said, there would be consequences. As death enters into creation, that has an effect on the lives of Adam and Eve and their ancestors, or, or their, uh, yeah, and us who've come from them. So, so listen to what God says to Eve when he tells her about the consequences for her sin. God says, to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, the, the, the phrase there, your desire, you can read Genesis 4-7 and see this is not like a, a, a warm romantic desire, but it's a desire to rule. It's a desire to control. Now, in other words, the consequence of death entering into creation, God says, is Eve's childbearing becomes painful and her position as one who's meant to submit to her husband becomes utterly frustrating. Frustrating because of her own sinfulness and frustrating because of her husband's sinfulness. This is what it, it was happened. Now what about Adam? Listen to Adam's curse. In verse uh, 17 and 19 of Genesis 3. And to Adam God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for you are dust. And to dust you will return. Now, in Adam's case, here's what happens. Adam's work becomes painful, making his responsibilities overwhelming to him. Now, now men, women, listen to me. Can, can you see this coming out in part of your experience in life? Women, have you not been frustrated with the fact that you seem to have this unfair responsibility to bear children? I mean, why didn't God create it so both men and women could get pregnant and have to carry the kid for nine months? It can be a massive burden. In fact, a lot of women don't want that burden. They don't want to carry this. It's their body and their choice, they say. And, and, and men, what about you? Have you ever felt like it just seems unfair that, that we have to do all this work? And, and I don't know about you, but I felt frustrated at times that it feels like, how come in an equality, equal society that women get maternity leave, but men don't always get paternity leave? That's something that people are fighting for now, isn't it? And work can get overwhelming. And I've, here's what I found. In my experience, I found that women struggle. They struggle most with issues of, in marriage at least, in, with issues of frustration and control. They just really wish their husband would get it right, would do what he's meant to do. I'm talking about Christian women. And, and men, I'll tell you what, I've, I've seen most that men struggle with work. 
I've seen so many men that were lazy, unwilling to take responsibility for their home, unwilling to, to, to do what it takes to provide for their family. Or I've seen men who overwork, hiding from some of the responsibilities at home by investing all their time in their work, sometimes even under the guise of I'm trying to provide for my family. In other words, the, the, the point is that, that because we've sinned, our roles as men and women, as God designed, and the purposes that were meant to come from those roles are completely twisted and deformed. We, we, we struggle to get them right. Now, this is a lot of bad news, I, I understand. <laughs> it's a lot of bad news. But with this bad news comes a good promise. And it's important for us to recognize that Paul's saying, as tempting as it is to chuck aside these gender roles. As, 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 as a woman, you might the first century woman might have thought, can't we just end this now because we are all equal in Christ? As a first century man, you might say, yeah, can't we just give this up because I want to share this, this, the weight of this responsibility? But Paul says, I want to keep these things. And he even seems to be saying here in verse 15 that there's something redemptive about these complementarian roles. Look at verse 15. Yet Paul says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now this is interesting. Who's the she that she's referring to? She's referring to Eve. She's referring to um, the, the, the curse uh, that, that entered through, um, through Adam's disobedience, through not taking care of Eve. She's re- he's referring to that. So she is the woman representing all womankind. Now they, here, represents both Adam and Eve. So in a sense, they're representing all humankind. Now, here's something I have to say before we go any further, okay? This is one of the most difficult verses to translate from Greek to English. It's very tricky. I don't say that as someone who knows anything about Greek. I know very little about Greek except to know how to use Greek helps uh, for my Bible study. But in reading about what these uh, scholars say about the language, it is one of the most tricky things to translate. So we want to go to the simplest way to interpret this most difficult verse to translate. And so we see she is representing uh, uh, Eve or the woman uh, who represents all womankind. They representing Adam and the woman representing all humanity. Now here's the other thing though. It says that, that they will be, <clears throat> uh, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Now that can be translated, listen, through the birth of the child. It can be translated that way. Now, again, difficult verse to translate, but the reason I'm wanting to bring this simple interpretation is, again, by what we read in Genesis chapter 3. Listen to this. Genesis 3.15, I'm reading now from the New King James. It says this. God says, I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent or the devil, and the woman, And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I want you to notice this. This is what theologians call the first gospel, the proto-evangelon. It's it's basically this idea that in this verse 15 of chapter 3 of Genesis is encapsulated the gospel, the future of the gospel. In fact, when it says your seed, that's Satan's seed, and her seed, that's the woman's seed, that itself is interesting because women don't have seeds. <laughs> that's the seed comes from the man. That's what the word sperm means. It comes from a Greek word for seed. The, man goes, uh, the, the seed goes into the woman and fertilizes the egg. That's how it works biologically. So you wouldn't speak biologically, in fact, you wouldn't really speak anywhere else biblically, of her seed. 
So some even think this might be a reference to the virgin birth. Interesting. But also, listen, it says that he, that is her seed, shall bruise your head, that is, uh, <clears throat> um, uh, bruise your head, that is the serpent's head, but you shall bruise his heel, that is the seed's heel. So in other words, talking about the fact that Satan will have what will seem to be a victory. He'll trip up the seed of the woman, who we know to be the Messiah. But ultimately, he will crush Satan's head. In other words, there's this great promise, this great promise that through the child born from Eve's descendants will be the Messiah. I don't know if you've ever read the genealogies in the beginning of like Matthew's gospel. It's the kind of scripture that maybe we're tempted to skip ahead. But if you read the genealogies, what's really interesting about them is they do something that's very unfirst century, something that's very not Jewish, even though Matthew's gospel is written to Jews. They include various women, even scandalous women in the genealogy of Christ. Why? To, I believe to remind us of this truth, that God is redeeming. Yes, okay, fine. Uh, women were deceived. Men were disobedient. The sin came through Adam. Adam gets blamed. But here's the point. Through women comes what? Redemption. The birth of a child. That God's using this role that he's giving and, and as the, the image bearer, the female image bearer, the helper, to bring forth redemption to the world. Now, it's also important for us to recognize <clears throat> that in this context, it's really important that we see redemption as something that we both receive and practice. Because what Paul says here in verse 15, he says that they'll, they'll be saved through this bearing of a child if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. In other words, we're both saved, uh, we're not saved by faith and holiness and, uh, and love and self-control, but we're saved for these things. God saves us, he redeems us, and we work out that salvation, we display this salvation in continuing to go forth by faith. And this is important. It's important because when we're talking about complementary roles in marriage and, and those, those things as they reflect and, and are applied in the church, these are very difficult things to apply. A lot of that we've talked about as a leadership team is wrestling through what's the right way to do this? What's the wrong way? When is it an appropriate time for a woman to be instructing a man? When is it an inappropriate time for a woman to be instructing a man? And we want to bring you into that conversation to let you hear some of that in future weeks to come when we have that panel discussion. But the, the, the reality is, is that, there, that these complementary roles are things that God has created and God has kept for redemptive purposes. He wants those things to still be there, to still remain a priority. They say something about how God wants to save us and about the kind of God who's doing the saving. So in, in closing, be encouraged with this verse, 2 Corinthians 4.16. Therefore, we do not lose heart even though the outward man is perishing, that is, we live in, because we live in the sin-cursed world, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. We're going to continue to wrestle through what this looks like. But we must continue to keep, as the scripture teaches us, these complementary rules as a priority. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you love us and that, Father, you are so willing and able to deal with us, to, to challenge us and to forgive us and to change us. And Father, I just pray, uh, just maybe right now representing the men in our church, we want to confess 
the times that we've been sexist, when we've looked down on women or been suspicious of women just because they're women. And we pray you'd forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for not honoring our sisters and our mothers and our wives as equal image bearers. And Father, I pray for the women in our fellowship that they would recognize that they have an important role to play. And they wouldn't put themselves in a lower place than they're meant to be, nor would they, they fall into the temptation of putting themselves in a higher place than they're meant to be. That you would teach the women in our church to be at peace, to be in their male leadership. And I pray for us that are in leadership in the church, both men and women, as we'll see as we continue through 1 Timothy, Lord, that you have a place in leadership for both men and women. Help us to model those complementarian roles well as a team. Help us, Lord, to demonstrate the gospel. And Father, I pray for any who are listening who still can't stomach this, that's something they still can't quite receive. I pray, Lord, they'd be willing to continue to press on and wrestle with what your word says. Lord Jesus, we thank you that through your death and resurrection, through your life and ministry, through your ascension and return, you've made it so clear that we are on equal footing, men and women, Jew and Greek, rich and poor. And Father, I pray you'd help us to live in that equality in a way that affirms these complementarian rules and exalts your gospel. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Make sure you get those questions to us. Uh, send us an email with those questions. We want to address those questions in the panel discussion coming soon. God bless you guys. Talk to you soon.